latest episode of The Claws Corner. Today's guest knew she wanted to be an author since the fifth grade when she wrote a story on index cards stapled to the pages and bound together by yarn. Her first book, which is entitled One Woman's Journey, Navigating the Online Dating Waters, is a humorous account of her experience finding love online. Her second book, which is also a memoir entitled Everything Will Be Okay, is a much darker tale exploring the dangers of online dating along with her own terrifying experience. It's a captivating as well as an engaging read, and I highly recommend that everyone buy their own copy of this book immediately. You will not be disappointed. So <laughs> please welcome author Dana Buckmer to the Claws Corner. Dana, Thank how you. are you? Good, how are you? Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> Sorry, on my end, something keeps popping up. There we go. So I want to get right into it because you and I have been going back and forth. I read your book maybe several months ago. I was introduced by a mutual friend of ours, Shaw. And uh, I read it, I could not put it down. It was a real page turner. I couldn't wait to see what was happening next. The only bad thing about this is that it's all true. <laughs> and you actually had to look at that. It's a great yeah. book. It makes for a great drama and like, oh my God, this is a real life story. So uh, let's talk about it. As I mentioned, I have it right here. Everything will be okay. Um, I want to start in the very beginning. Book okay. opens up, you go to Starbucks and you're meeting a psychic or a medium. Right. First of all, do you believe that mediums are real and there are people that can contact the dead? Uh, well, I didn't at first. That's why in that first chapter, I was really skeptical, but I figured I would try it. And um, it was it was very unconventional too, because like I said in the book, I expected her to look like a medium, you know, maybe wearing like a, a hat and having a crystal ball or something. And she was in nursing scrubs and she met me at Starbucks. So it was kind of an unusual situation. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted some something to validate that she was legit because you hear all the time people trying to scam other people or, um, you know, you cueing them and then they pick up on your cues and then, you know, it's just not real. So I asked her to give me something to let me know that, you know, it, it was real. And she told me that my father had watched me in the bathroom um, sniffing his cologne because I live in the house where he, he used to own and he died. And when I moved in here, I left a lot of things unchanged and that was one of them. So, you know, when I would miss him, I would go in the bathroom and smell the cologne and remember him. And I always felt silly about it. So I never shared it with anybody. And that's what she told me. So I was like, it, there's no way that she could make this up. That I'm a skeptical believer. I do believe that people do have the power to talk, speak with the dead. And what I like about that is that the people you thought you were going to see, those are the ones I think are the most fake because they're doing it for show. They want money. They're usually found on the boardwalk of Atlantic City or Las Vegas. Right. And they, <laughs> they, they put billboards up saying, see Zelda. She'll tell you what your future is. Right. Those are the people I really don't believe. They just want a quick buck. The people that you mentioned, she comes in her scrubs. She's at Starbucks. She's really not noticeable. If you, she walked yeah. down the street, you wouldn't even think twice about her. Those right. are people I think that can really do it. And that's why I'm glad that you did have this experience. And you mentioned something about your father. In the book, I want to talk about this because she said in the middle of this, she began screaming, swearing, and yelling about guns. Right. I'll kill you for what you have done. <laughs> yeah. um, well, it was it's almost like she was channeling my father because I was really caught off guard that she started talking like that. And then I realized that's how my father used to talk. And he was kind of a hothead. So, um, you know, when I questioned her about it, she was like, 
oh, that's not me, honey. It's your dad. So, which was strange. It was kind of like, almost like one of those ghost moments, you know, where Whoop Whoopi Goldberg like gets in the body and starts speaking, but yeah. Yeah, it was a little freaky. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so how long did that last for? Um, her sessions are an hour. And then, um, you know, I just felt good about it. She was very um, like nurturing. She gave me a hug at the end. And she said I could call her anytime and ask her questions. And I actually did call her and follow up because in the beginning of our session, I didn't go there to talk about my friend, Peter. Um, I went there to talk about my father. Um, but it turns out that my friend, Peter, he was diagnosed with cancer and I had just gotten back from a trip to visit him in Florida. And that's how she started in the conversation. She was like, there's somebody that has pain in their bones and he had bone cancer. And I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about it. So I followed up with her after and I told her, you know, I just was reluctant because I didn't want to like confront the fact that that was true, that he had cancer. And she yeah. was like, oh, it's okay. It happens all the time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She definitely sounds very legitimate. Were you oh my God. I've recommended her to everybody. Right. Well, let's, give her, <laughs> let's give her some free promotion. Right. What's her name? Where can people find her? Uh, her name is Lori the Medium. That's how I have her saved in my phone. Lori the Medium. <laughs> you can find her by contacting me. Okay, very good. And we'll, at the end of the show, I'm going to have it on the screen where everybody can find out where to find you and what's next. But you were also going there because you were looking for love. Is that correct? To the Medium? Yes. Is that one of the reasons not, you went to the Medium? No, not per se. It just kind of came up at the end. Okay. You know, I wanted, I just figured she was like, do you have any more questions? And I said, oh, let me just throw it out there. So I did ask her if I would find love again. And she said uh, that I would, and that it would be received like a message. So then when I was reached out through messenger by the person that I, I wrote about in the book, I thought, oh, it's like a, you know, divine intervention. You know, it was, really a message from a yeah. higher power so but it was not so it was somebody on facebook was it a friend of yours that reached out to you or was it somebody that you didn't even know that saw your facebook profile and said well i like the way she looks how are you, you want to go out sometime well um you know i feel like there are a lot of people on facebook that i'm connected with that i don't actually know in real life i i feel like that is for a lot of people especially people like authors, you know, that want to spread the word about their book or whatnot. So when my first book came out, I just kept accepting friend requests and not knowing who they were. And he was one of them. And I thought Facebook was safe because it's not like a dating app where you just get what they put on there. Like you see, I mean, you, it's what they put on there, but you could see their connections and it, it's a history that goes back farther and pictures of friends and family. So I feel like you get a better picture of the who the person is. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, it was like a local person who seemed charming and nice and well-spoken. So I figured, why not? When he asked me out for a date. And how was that first date? The first date was like the best date I've ever had. It was like a three hour date. It was really nice. It was on the water. He spent like $300. He was very attentive, you know. Um, he was very, uh, really uh, entertaining. You know, I, I like to laugh. He made me laugh. It just, it was a, like the perfect date. But what I noticed about him was that I feel like people like that, that are predators, 
you know, that, that they study, they study other people, you know, and I took it as, oh, I'm so flattered. He wants to know everything about me. And, you know, he pays attention to things, but they don't do it for the reason that like good people do it for, they do it so that they can put it in a file and use it against you later. Yeah. Now, how long did it go well until you realized something's just not right with this? Uh, pretty fast. Uh, I don't think they could really hide it for that long. You know, I, I explain it like people put a mask on and they usually can't put, keep the mask on for like more than 30 days. So I would say there are little clues here and there. Like he started being critical of me, kind of like picking me apart, trying to make me feel insecure. Um, just some things about his backstory that didn't make sense. But of course, he always had a great explanation for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, it was the summer and I, it was just kind of like a whirlwind romance and I just wanted to go with it and be in love. And I think probably the pandemic had something to do with it. The fact that I met him towards the end of the pandemic and we had all been sheltered for a while. Mm -hmm. I think that I was probably just craving human connection, you know, yeah. so badly that I overlooked a lot of things that I shouldn't have. Like they always say that the red flags that you ignore in the beginning, you'll pay for later. And I, I know that looking back there, yeah, there are a lot of red flags that I should have, you know, paid attention to, but I didn't because I wanted to look at the best in people and see the best in people and think, you know, he's a good person or give him a second chance. But those things come back to bite you in the end. Well, speaking of it coming back to bite you, let's talk about the infamous boat incident. Yeah. Well, I never, I never had anybody hit me before. So I, I guess I just was so shocked. It was, it's almost surreal. Like I felt like I was having an out of body experience. Like I was in a movie because it was just so over the top crazy and it didn't follow the pattern of abuse. Like generally people that are abusers do it in private. They don't do it with an audience. And I'm on a boat with my friend that I grew up with and his friend. And I had promised her a really nice day on the water. And I just couldn't believe it. I was so shocked. Like, I just wanted to believe that it wasn't real. It wasn't really happening. And that there must be an explanation. Like, throughout the whole relationship, I was trying to rationalize his behavior because it was so over the top. It was hard for me to wrap my head around it. Yeah. But after that incident, you know, I went to the hospital the next day, I went to the emergency room because I couldn't hear and I had bruising where he, he uh, smacked me. And that's the first time that I, I said out loud about the abuse. And um, the nurse that I met when I was first admitted and another nurse, maybe like two or three nurses shared their experience with me. And I realized that it happens to so many people. Yeah. But it had never happened to me before. So, you know, that was like my first realization that this is a, a real problem that's prevalent in our society. Did you call the cops on him that time to have him arrested? Well, it's funny, Rich, because he called the cops on himself. It was, he was so, his behavior was just so over the top. And he was like, I don't know, maybe he just figured out that, oh, wow, like I'm in trouble. So he called the cops and started screaming that, he that I was going to get arrested that I hit him like he tried to change the whole thing around and I'm like what is he talking about and he kept trying to come at me and attack me 
And my friend was like shielding me and she's like this big, you know, she's tiny, but yeah. she was holding me and she was like, just everything will be okay. Just be quiet. Don't respond to him. He's trying to bait you. And she just talked to me, you know, through it. And then when we docked, we just couldn't like wait to get off the boat and we ran and um, yeah, the cops came, but we weren't there because I had driven home and then they came to my house and took a statement. So at that time, did you think it was over for good? You're like, I never want to see him again. This guy is crazy. I don't want to be hit. I don't deserve to be hit. And did you stop speaking with him? Well, there was a, a protective order. Like immediately they put a protective order in place. But I don't know. I just, I don't know if it's the writer in me. I just feel like I need answers to things. And sometimes you don't need answers. Like their answers are in the actions, but I just want answers. So like, I just wanted to know why that happened and, you know, uh, have some kind of explanation. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of days. And then I did. And he, he contacted me and he was just like, I'm so sorry. And uh, at that time he wasn't supposed to obviously contact me, but he did. I'm so sorry. And I love you. And, um, you know, just every excuse that my medication mixed with alcohol and I won't drink anymore. And I'm not this kind of person. I've never done this before. And turns out later, I found out that he has done this before to a lot of people. But I, you know, I fell for it because, again, I wanted to believe the best in, in someone. And I just couldn't understand why that would happen. What is intermittent explosive disorder? Uh, I don't even know if that's a legit diagnosis, but it's something that he diagnosed himself with. And <laughs> I'm he, only laughing because it seems like he's a doctor, he's a psychologist. This guy does oh, it yeah, all. He does. And I'm telling you, if you met him, you would probably like him because yeah. he was very likable and he was very convincing, very intelligent. That you have to be intelligent to get away with all this kind of stuff. And I would hear him sometimes on the phone with his psychologist and he convinced him that he had intermittent explosive disorder. Basically I said, so you're just really an asshole and you just can't control your impulses. That's what that is. So if I go around like attacking people verbally or physically, I just say, I have intermittent explosive disorder and that's okay. Intermittent <laughs> <Maybe> disorder. <laughs> it's out of my control. Know. I'm sorry. Whatever I do is not my sorry. fault. Yeah. exactly so that's what yeah he was like that but he convinced a lot of people uh that that was really true and and like to, to date he's trying to convince the courts that he has bipolar now he has bipolar disorder and i know a lot of people that have bipolar disorder that don't attack people you know exactly. and, and so i don't know good luck with that um defense but i think it's a load of crap and i told them that too i was like he needs to be held accountable and it's not a one-time thing. This has happened throughout for the past three decades. It goes back to when he was living um, in his home state to when he went to college in Connecticut. Like he's just a menace to society. Yeah. So, so how long before he wasn't supposed to reach out to you, he did. And that you said, all right, let me give him a second chance. I know the author and you said, you want to find your answers because with the restraining order, restrictive order, how long before he was allowed to be with you again? He was never allowed to be with me. He wasn't, okay. So you, so you no. just put him back on your own then and said? Yeah. Okay. That was stupid. It, you know, hindsight 2020 and all that. It was stupid of me. But there was a, a persuasiveness about him and a manipulation 
where he almost like brainwashed me into believing that I couldn't live without him. It's bizarre. And, and, and I'm not that person. And now that the fog has lifted, I look back at it and I'm like, I want to shake myself and say like, what's wrong with you? Cause everybody's like, why did you put up with that? That's not the Dana that we know. And why didn't you leave? And, but you know what, these people, these type of people that prey on good hearted people, they're so pervasive and you see it in the Netflix um, documentaries, like the Tindler Swindler and the bad vegan, you know, these people, yeah. they just like, they, they really brainwash you and manipulate you and mess with your head. And that's the only thing that that's the only way that I can explain it. And it's, it's something that a lot of people can't comprehend unless they've been in the situation firsthand. Yeah. Well, I want you to give me some examples of how Eric had a way of dragging things out to delay you from leaving him. Because one of the things, even though he made it always seem like it was your fault, there was, he was always had it in the back of his head that you were going to leave him. And there was things that he would do so that you couldn't leave him for at least a certain amount of time. Yeah, he definitely had abandonment issues and he hated his mother. And uh, I think that that's what it, like he would always say, you're going to leave me, you're going to leave me. So like in the beginning, it was positive things to make me not leave him. It was like cooking me this gourmet dinner or like singing to me or buying me gifts and bringing me flowers or doing things to help me. Um, but then it got to um, the, the bathroom. Mm -hmm. He, so one day he locked me out of the house and he didn't do it on purpose. He was leaving, but he didn't realize that the bottom lock, I didn't have a key for. So I went to take the dog out and I got locked out and I had to break in and through the house by breaking a window and, you know, climbing through the window of the bathroom. And I just wanted him to repair the window. And he ended up gutting the whole bathroom oh. and it was like for months and he would do it in secret. Like when I would go to sleep and he would lock the door. So I couldn't see the progress or lack of. And then finally, when I saw it, I was like, so appalled. There was no toilet. There was no sink. There were no walls. There was nothing. It was just like beams holding up the back. And I would like ask him like, Eric, you need to fix the bathroom every day. He would be like, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And it would never get done. And I feel like he never wanted it to get done because number one, he wanted to drive me crazy. Yeah. And number two, he thought if I fix the bathroom, then she'll have no reason to keep me around. Yeah. So, yeah, things like that. He played a lot of mind games. Besides being physical, he played a lot of mind games with you. Uh, he One of the things he did was he loved to flirt with young women to get a rise out of you. Then as soon as you said something, Oh, you're just insecure. You're jealous. Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, and I, I started researching narcissist abuse mm -hmm. and, you know, the cycle of abuse and he really, he fit all the indicators. My therapist says that he's definitely not just a narcissist. He's a, a sociopath, but he's very calculated. But what he was doing was gaslighting me. Gaslighting is one of the things, you know, um, and like into me making like question myself, like, am I really insecure? Am I overreacting? Like he would even do things like, like move things and then, and then be like, oh, you don't know where that is, Dana? So that I would start thinking like I'm crazy or something, you know, just like the movie with the yeah. lights going on. Yeah. But yeah, he was definitely a, a master at it because I feel like he'd had so much practice. I feel like with every relationship, he would jump from relationship to relationship because he could never be alone. 
And he probably followed the same script because after the fact, I had a lot of his exes reach out to me and they were saying the same thing that he said to me. So that's how he, he got all these women. He would say, you're the love of my life. You know, oh, I love you so much. You're my soulmate, you're my end game. And then I would hear these women repeat the same language. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, does anybody really know Eric? Like, is he just a figment, you know, of your imagination? He's whatever you want him to be at that moment. Yeah, he's, he's like a chameleon. He just becomes who he's with. And he created this character, which is a horrible character. But yeah, he's it, nobody will ever probably, I don't even think he knows the real Eric, which is sad. Another mind game that he played we want to talk about, which was even worse, I think, than some of the things you mentioned where he, one time you were on your way to Florida. I want to talk about that. And he mentioned, hey, you may not make it home. Stranger things have happened. And you're like, that's not funny. All he said was deadpan. It's not supposed to be funny. And then you right. just stopped. He's just messing with you. Yeah. And I feel like the universe just was like, like, oh my God, this is a vacation from like a nightmare vacation. It was my birthday. And we go to the Sunshine State and there was no sunshine the whole time. So imagine being stuck in an Airbnb when it's raining day to night with the psychopath. Like, I, I mean, he was right. Who knows if I was going to get out alive? And then, you know, I think he felt like he knew that he was losing me during that vacation um, because he threatened to kill himself at the end of it. And then he played on my like sympathy card, you know, but he, th he threatened to kill himself with overdosing by melatonin. Which I want to stop right there. Is, I take melatonin to get to sleep. And there's times where I've taken eight, 10 milligram pills because I cannot sleep at all. I'm always wide awake. My mind's always going. There's no way you can OD on a, first of all, it's already in your body. It's a, it, your body secretes it in so you can fall asleep at night naturally. But I take extra so I can fall asleep because what I have normally doesn't work. So yeah, I laughed when I read that because right. he said, oh, I'm going to, I overdosed, I'm over, I'm going to die. And you found out later it was just melatonin, which is a sleep aid. <laughs> yeah, he's really something else. And he would just, he would go from zero to a hundred so fast. Mm -hmm. So I was always walking on eggshells, you know, like wondering when he was going to have another episode. Was there, during this time, I know that you said you thought you could help him. You wanted to find out, was there a time like, I just cannot take this anymore. It's got to end. And it was, I'm sure there's times within the stories you're telling me where you tried to kick him out. Oh and yeah, all the time. I kicked him out all the time. And he would make a big, like extravagant, like, you know, um, thing before he left screaming, calling me every name and then taking all his stuff and leaving and then coming back. You know, like he was just, it was so toxic and, um, you know, it was just such a horrible time in my life and it felt like it went on forever. And I just wish like for it to go away and it would it ever stop. It was only three months, almost four months. It just oh. felt like a lifetime. And, uh, I don't know. I just, I guess something drastic had to happen in order for him to finally go away. And then, yeah, that, that was it. Was he trying to divide you with your friends by, I don't want you hanging out with these people. These people are a bad influence on you. So he knew that they would talk you out of being with him. Was he yeah. trying to do that a lot? Yeah, for sure. Like my family, he didn't want me talking to my family. He didn't want me talking to my friends. He was very suspicious. He always thought that I was cheating on him. And I've never cheated on anybody in my whole life. Like I'm not going to start now. 
But the reason, so I, I learned that accusations are actually confessions. Mm-hmm. So every time that he said that he was, you know, I was cheating on him, he was cheating on me, you know, and he would lie, lie and cheating, lie and cheating was just part of his DNA. But even the friends that he didn't isolate me for, from, he made it really uncomfortable for them to be around him. Like I would invite people over for dinner and he just, he didn't know how to, like what was socially acceptable. He would talk about like strange things like threesomes and, and like masturbating. Everything was like hypersexual. Like you don't talk about that at a dinner party, I know. you know, like, Hey, so-and-so have you had a threesome? Like, I mean, it was just weird. Like, or, or he would be over the top with his professions. Like, Oh, I love Dana so much. He's the love of my life. And I'm going to get married and we're going to have a baby and love, you know, like too much. People <laughs> didn't want to come over. Yeah. Wow. So it was a very uncomfortable, but. I think he might be right in one, one aspect. I think he is a sociopath. Like uh, that person told you, but I think bipolar is a big part. I, I do know a lot of people with bipolar who are not violent, just like you said, but the going from zero to a hundred yeah. in three seconds, I mean, there's definitely more to it than that, but I think that's definitely one of the th- many things that he has many of the disorders in because, because yeah, that's just really odd. I mean, not even if that was an act, I could see it was one thing, but just, I don't even know if he has control over what he's doing because. No, or yeah. any kind of empathy. Like you cannot just leave a trail of destruction behind you and destroy people's lives and not care. Like he is currently incarcerated. He hasn't been sentenced yet. So he's been in there for over a year. And there was a girl that's that a friend of his that would call me and tell me that she would talk to him and she would ask him, you know, are you remorseful? And he had no remorse. He actually tried to tell her that it was my fault. And I did all of this to my house. Like, Wow. It's just bizarre. And, and the thing is that that is so crazy is that people believe him. Like after the boat incident, he had some friends bail him out. And he was like, oh, Dana, she's an alcoholic. She's an alcoholic and a drug addict. And she's violent. And they believed him. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this man is so persuasive. And that's mm-hmm. how he gets away with it. But there were witnesses on the boat that can attest to the fact that no, he beat you. Yeah. I just think, and, and, you know, he's very, he's really good at like um, playing on people's heartstrings, like especially women. I think that he targeted women that were quote unquote broken, like ones that either single mothers or ones that had a drug and alcohol abuse history. Um, ones that didn't have fathers, you know, like things like that. And I think that he really um, took advantage of the situation and, and tried to create this persona that he would like be family. He'd be a support system. He'd be, you know, all these things that, that are lacking and um, just didn't work out that way. Well, let's talk about some of the women that he did date in the past because his ex-girlfriend, one of them, the first yeah. one we talk about, she tried to warn you. And what was your initial reaction the first time? Oh, Beth. Uh, well, so she reached out. I knew about her already. So what's crazy is that everybody that contacted me, I had already known about them because he told me, which I thought, oh, he's being so honest and, and sharing. But 
it's really a tactic because if he gives the story before they give the story, then who am I going to believe? You know, I'm more likely to believe him, but he's giving his version of the story, which is most likely not the truth. So yeah. she reached out to me and I already had it in my head that she was like a psycho, you know, she liked to drink and that she was obsessed with him and she was violent and she was all these things. Cause he told me that about her. So she reached out and, um, you know, she warned me that he was abusive and that he had been abusive with her. So I listened to her and then I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. So when he came over, I brought it up and uh, then he put her on speakerphone so I could hear the conversation. And then she started saying things like, oh, Dane is so ugly. And why are you going to be with her and this and that? And I was like, oh, all the more reason for me not to believe her. Because clearly she just wants him back. She's trying to break us up. So it really strengthened his case yeah. by, you know, the way that she acted. So I, I've talked to her since, you know, and she's like, I tried to warn you, but I just didn't. I didn't think she was a credible person. You know, I, I didn't believe her. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a jealous ex that just wants him back. That's exactly what it sounded like. Right. And then when I was talking to her, she was slurring her words. And I'm like, there you go. She's a drunk. You know, like, why would I believe her? Yeah. So, yeah. I want to talk about uh, his friend Walter and his strange, to say the least, relationship <laughs> with Eric. <laughs> so bizarre. So I overheard them one time. He told me about Walter, that he used to work for Walter, that Walter had his own business, um, bringing people back and forth to the airport. And then he used to drive for him. And so Eric was in between jobs. So he was trying to, you know, um, live his passion. And, and so but he wanted some extra money. So he thought, oh, I'll rekindle my relationship with Walter and, and drive for him. So I overheard their conversation one time and he was calling, Eric was calling Walter daddy. And Walter was calling Eric baby boy. And I was like, what the? And I, I was like, why would you say so? Oh, you have nicknames for your friends. And I was like, not daddy and baby boy. And so when I finally met Walter, when he drove us to the airport, it was like this 70 year old gay black man. Yes. And I'm like, what's going on between you guys? And he was like, clearly mad at me. Like he didn't give me any eye contact. He didn't say anything, you know, really, he wasn't friendly at all. And as he was driving, Eric was carrying on about, oh, my beautiful author, girlfriend, and Dana this and Dana that. And I almost felt like there was tension, like jealousy, you know, and Eric was doing it on purpose to rub it in his face. And I was like, the two of you definitely have something going on. It's very, very strange. Did you ever find out the, the true relationship between those two? I'm almost positive that they had a, a sexual relationship. I think that Eric just used people I don't think it's it's hard for like people that are normal to understand the way that he looked at other people. But see, I don't think that he saw a person as like a person with a soul and feelings and emotions and all that. I think he just saw the person as a vessel for what he could get, what whether it was sexual gratification or money or whatever, companionship, status anything whatever he could get he would use someone for and consume them and even Walter when I talked to him he's like oh I, I don't need to take the abuse Eric had come to my house and he had destroyed some things 
you know, because he can't control his temper. And then he said that, oh, he no longer works for me because Eric was hitting on the 16-year-old girl that he drove to the airport. Oh, my God. So it was just total shit show. Yeah. No, it sounds like that he just uses anybody and everyone to get what he can get out of them. Like you said. It doesn't matter, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, young or old. One of the girls that he dated right before me, she said that he would hit on the maid, the, the cleaning woman at their house when he would come over, and also her grandma that was like 90. Oh my like, God. <laughs> can you imagine? Like everybody hides your grannies. Eric's coming over. Nobody's safe from this guy. Wow. Nobody's safe. No. <laughs> <laughs> and the sad thing is, it's probably the 90-year-old like, oh, you're so nice. And she was know, just yeah. all in. She thought it was just fun flirting. And no. He was probably being serious. Yeah, he was being like no boundaries at all. He's probably so. looking at her savings account saying, Oh, well, she's gonna die soon. I, I can do it once or twice, you know. Yeah. Who knows what's going through his head and who really wants to know? <laughs> yeah, he's just sick. It's really it's it's a sickness, you know. And I had never met anybody like that before. You know, what's crazy is that I lived in, in South Florida for mm -hmm. six years. I moved down there. I knew nobody. And I would go out by myself. I met so many people while I was there. And I never, ever, ever had a crazy person like this. You know, like everybody goes, oh, South Florida. That's where all the nut jobs go. You know, all the criminals go. I was safe in South Florida. I had to come back to Connecticut to meet <laughs> a psychopath. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> now there's another ex that warned you that he's a deadbeat dad. He's an ex-husband and she sent you links of his current um, case and convictions. So what was his reaction from that to that? Well, that, that's what made him spiral out of control. That was towards the end of the relationship. So um, he was really big on posting on social media, you know, this illusion of this wonderful relationship that we had. And she must have, you know, come across it. And so she contacted me on my author email though on, um, she sent, sent me links and said all these things and I confronted him about it. And that's when he spiraled out of control. And, you know, that was the, the night before he went off. Yeah. So that was right before the end then. So that prompted. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was right before. Now, you said that with Eric, it was all about power and dominance. And once he got a reaction out of you, he would later apologize and go back to normal, whatever that is for him. Yeah. Yeah, there are different stages of abuse. So, like, the love bombing was the beginning. Like, oh, I love watching the gifts and the flowers and the attention and all the praise. And then um, it goes to devaluation, where, you know, it's the criticism and it's the abuse and everything. And then it's discard. And then it starts over again. So once he would try with, to break me down, once he would get me to that breaking point, and then he knew that he was in, in charge and he was in control, he had the power, then he would start with the love bombing again. And it was me waiting to go through all the stages again, yeah. hoping that I would go back to the love bombing stage. Because it's almost like a drug, you know, like you want to go back to that, that high, the feeling, you know, that you get you get so it's like you you keep waiting and hoping that you'll return to that point but it's never the same yeah now during this 
you started going to therapy and you, cause you thought you were having a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it was like, I felt like, I think that your body gives you physical signs when something is wrong. Um, and it could, you know, something emotionally wrong. There wasn't anything physically wrong with me, but it was my body trying to tell me like, hold on, you know, there's, this is, you need to change something. It was like, I was in a constant state of fight or flight. Yeah. What's mastication? Mastication. (laughs) One of the psychiatrists was like, oh, for your anxiety, you might want to um, chew, Uh, you know, chewing could help you mastication. And I was like, well, what, what do you mean? And he was like, cook a well-done steak. And then when you chew, 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 that should be helpful. And I was like, who is this guy? Like this whack job, he needs a psychiatrist. Like, first of all, I would never order well-done steak, you know, like, so uh, yeah, some of these people have very bizarre strategies for anxiety. Well, it turns out all I needed to do was get rid of the psychopath because now I have no anxiety. It's cured. <laughs> yeah, I, wish, I, wish, I wish you came to me first. I would have told you that a long time ago. Tobacco, and I wouldn't even charge you. Thank you. Free advice. My favorite part of that whole story was his nickname or his name in the book, Dr. Douche. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Douche. Yeah, that's actually not his real name, believe it or not. No. Um, but yeah, he was a douche. Even like, I felt like he didn't really care. You know, he was like, I said, oh, I'm so worried that this will happen. He was like, well, if you worry about it, it will happen. It's called self-fulfilling prophecy. And I was like, "Wow." I don't know. I just didn't think that he had any kind of um, empathy. And then I met my current therapist and she's amazing. Oh, good. She really got me through, uh, you know, everything. I don't know if I would have been able to do it without her. I'm glad that you finally found somebody that's good for you. Because I have some friends that go to therapy and one of the things that friend of mine told me they told her well if it's not the, whatever the person says to you it's not their fault it's your fault for letting it bother you I said wait a minute you can't yeah. control what bothers you and what doesn't bother you it's not like all right I'm, I mean it's easy to say you know what I don't really care what this person thinks and you can do that but for the most part if it's a really good friend and I forgot what the situation was I want to say it was a family member and like well then that's just your problem for letting it bother you. So I just, yeah, it seems like she yeah. might want Dr. Deuce too. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. It's quite possible. I think what maybe in that situation, what they're trying to say is that you can't, you can't control what people do, but you can control how you respond to it. Yeah. But like you're not supposed to like disqualify people's feelings and say, well, you're not supposed to feel that, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, like, where, that's where I took issue with that. I said, no. And I agree with you. Like, I'm the same way. It's like, I don't really care if people like me, that's fine. If you don't like me, that's just as fine, but you can't control for the most part, how it's going to affect you. You could be in a, uh, in a downtime and you're feeling bad and that's going to bother you. Like, well, that's your problem. So I, yeah. I think you need, so psychiatrists, I would rather have them with a little bit more empathy. <laughs> I'm with you on that for one. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. It has to be the right fit, you know, because I mean, you're sharing things that are so personal and in your, you know, becoming exposed and vulnerable. You, I mean, you really have to have the right fit. I, I had somebody a couple, like, no, longer than a couple, long time ago. And I walked out of the office within 15 minutes because I was complaining about a boyfriend I had at the time. 
And he's like, he's an asshole. Why don't you just leave him? And I was like, well, I don't really want to leave him. But he goes, and you're an asshole if you stay with them. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, you're not supposed to swear at me. And I'm not supposed to feel worse after I come here. I'm supposed to feel better. So. Who's your psychiatrist, the drilled sergeant from uh, Full Metal Jacket? Yeah, for real. I don't know. I mean, some people, you got to make you wonder why they got into that profession. Did you ever have relationship relationship therapy with Eric? Did you ever go together? No, no, no. no I don't think that would have turned out well. No, no. I think like the people you went to would have taken his side anyway. See, Eric seems like a nice guy. I don't know what you're talking about. I can picture yeah. that of the first therapist saying something like that. I think he probably would have manipulated the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's just insecure and she's jealous. I'm just, I'm just a friendly person. And she thinks right. I could picture the whole, I mean, I don't even know this guy, but just the way yeah. you describe him in the book and what we're talking about now, I could see that happening. Yeah. You compared him to Jekyll and Hyde. He was Jekyll during the day. And then at night is when he became Hyde. Yeah. Well, he, he explained that the reason that happened is because at night, um, it was harder for him to control his frontal lobe. He did a lot of research like on psychology and stuff. So the frontal lobe is what controls your impulses and things. And he said that it weakens as the day goes on. So nighttime is when he became a monster and that part of him came out because his frontal lobe was weakened. Wow. Yeah. He's up way too long at night looking at WebMD. Yeah. Yeah. He really had something for everybody and like an explanation for everything. And what it was is that he would just talk, 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 talk. And to the point where I just wanted him to shut up and he wouldn't stop. Like everything was an argument and he was relentless. And I just think that that was part of his strategy to try to, you know, break me down. And there was a time too, where he would not let you get to sleep. You would be, or I'm going to bed, leave me alone. And you would be just getting to sleep. Hey, and then he would wake you up yeah. looking at one of your Facebook photos. Who's this guy? Right. Yeah. That's another tactic too, like sleep deprivation. You know, they, I think they use that in the military to try to break people down. They do. You know, I just feel like he would use these things, consciously use these things um, to try to um, make it, you know, get me off balance. And then the next day he would be so sweet, you know, and the sun, sun came up and so apologetic. It was just um, it, an emotional roller coaster of which one am I going to get, depending on the day or the hour, you know, in the minute. Now, I mean, I know you mentioned you've tried to kick him out several times, kept coming back. There must have been a time where you said, I just can't take him. Did you ever try to contact the police again and say, this time I really don't want him near me at all? No, because I knew that if I contacted the police, he would be violating his, the protective order and he would get in trouble. Um, so I told him that I would never contact the police. And he actually told me after the boat incident that if he ever did anything to make me feel threatened, that I should call the police. So finally, when I did call the police, that's when I knew, like, there are a lot of times that I wavered on it. Actually, when we were in Florida for vacation, I called because he was acting like a, a crazy person. Yeah, but it was South Florida. So of course they didn't come, you know, like, cause everything happens in South Florida and yeah. they called, they called back and 
Oh no, he grabbed the phone and he he acted like I was a child that had misdialed. And he, he explained that the situation was under control and that they didn't have to come. <laughs> oh my God. See, as a cop, I think that it would be smart just to drive by there just in case like, ma'am, I just want to make sure everything's good. Okay, thank you very much. Because you hear so many stories like about that. And perfect example is in Torrington. Uh, there was a movie about that where she kept calling in cops. She had an abusive husband, and one time he finally did kill her. It was a movie starring Nancy yeah. Sheehan, so years ago, but it happened right in Connecticut. So I mean, things like that obviously do happen all over the world. But I, right. I want to talk about how your time as a teacher at an inner city school helped you uh, helped you out in those situations. Well, I um, I was always really good with the at risk kids that had a lot of behavioral issues, they would always give those kids to me because I was very patient and calm and like um, nurturing with them. And so they responded well to me. So I was used to being in very chaotic um, environments, like violent environment. We had a lot of fights or the kids would just act out and, you know, be impulsive. And I trained myself like not to respond to that. So whereas like a, when a, like a regular person would have somebody screaming in their face or trying to attack them and they would react, I wouldn't. So I feel like a lot of the times, like if I had done something, it would have been a lot worse for me. But because I, I just kind of was calm and, and took it, then it almost diffused the, you know, but these were things that I didn't plan on having to apply to my personal life. <laughs> Definitely. I you can't imagine. And this was all happened within a course of what you said, three months. Yeah, it was a short time. Wow. A lot of things happened in those short three months. Yeah, definitely. Enough to write a book about. Yes. <laughs> I want all my viewers buy this book. It's engaging. It's captivating. It's interesting. There's not a dull moment in the book. Like I said, unfortunately, it's all true. Thank you. Now, let's talk about right near the end. Let's talk about that final mm -hmm. night. So uh, I'll let you take it away. So um, he was he was becoming unhinged about that email from the ex-girlfriend and he wouldn't let it go. And I asked him to leave because I had lent him my father's computer and he wanted to contact the ex and he was like, um, answer her through email and whatnot. And I refused to even get involved in it. And he took the computer and just slammed it down on the ground and it broke into pieces. And I was like, you need to leave right now. And he wouldn't leave. He refused to leave. And then I was like, Eric, leave. You need to leave. And, you know, he just, I just don't think he took me seriously, you know, cause I had told him I'm not going to call the police. And, and he believed that. And then he, there was something different about him that night. It's like one of those situations where, um, like, a defining moment that could change the course of your life. If if I had stayed in that house, I might not be sitting here today because he looked at me with like this just cold, like soulless, empty look. And he was like, um, I don't think this is going to work out for, this is not going to end well for you, Dana. And I knew that I had, and I kept like going in and out of the house and like, what should I do? What should I do? And I took my dog and I just let, I just ran out of the house. And um, I called 911 
and they sent some officers over and I was like, you know, he's being abusive and he refuses to leave. And they're like, is he violent? Will he go after us? And I said, yeah, probably. And they went through the back door in the house and he threw something immediately out the window and they thought it was shots fired. So they like scrambled out. And then um, he basically refused to leave the house. He barricaded himself in the house and it was a four hour SWAT standoff. The whole time he was taunting me because he had his phone with him and he was like telling me, like he'd show me a picture of broken glass. He'd send a text to broken glass, glass and tell me that he's gonna kill himself in my house and haunt me. And he would like show me pictures of things that he was uh, destroying. He just destroyed the whole house and he actually threatened to burn it down, but they were able to contact the gas company and have them cut the gas before he did that. Um, and yeah, just four hours of destruction. And I was in the parking lot, like down the street, just waiting for it to be over. Well, another bad thing besides him destroying your house is that you're on your computer, you are in the middle of writing a new book. Yeah. Yeah. And he knew that it was, that was so important to me. So when I came back into the house and I like ran to the computer, cause I almost had the computer when I was going out the door. And then I was like, just leave Dana, you know, like, because I didn't know if he was going to run after me or what, just leave everything behind. So all I did was take my dog. And when I came back in the house, the computer was just in pieces. He oh. took like a, a hammer and a crowbar to everything. And I, I took it to this, to the um, place to see if they could fix it and they couldn't salvage anything. And I guess I had like the one drive where it was saved, it wasn't uploading it. So it never upload, there's no way to recover it. So and it was just saved to the word on the, the desktop, the, um, the desktop and it was just gone. But I thought then after that, I thought, well, this is a better story anyway. <laughs> and I, and then I felt like compelled. I had to, to write about it because, you know, something good had to come out of it. Well, I think the good thing that came out of it is that there's a lot of people out there, as you said in the beginning, they're not alone. The other people are going through this and they don't want to say anything. So they're like, oh, it, they, I mean, not that you ever thought it was your fault, but they just feel like they can't talk about it and they're all alone. But you're letting people know. It's like, no, this does happen. And some there are other people there for you. Yeah. So I think it's a very, very, not only a great book, but it's a very important book that people should read. Get a lot yeah, of thank you. That was my thing. Like I wanted people to think, I wanted people to realize that, yeah, they're not alone. And that, you know, like I said earlier, I always thought, oh, this will never happen to me. It happens to those people, but there aren't those people. Like I am every woman that was abused. Like the, you know, like I said, um, I just feel like that abuse exists in silence and shame. And once you start talking about it and taking back your power, you give people permission to do the same, to share their story. So I have been active on like groups on Facebook for domestic violence survivors. And I try to do that. Ultimately, I would like to, to host a writing workshop because writing was so healing for me you know, to, to get through this, um, and process everything that I feel like I've benefited so much from it. And I would like to share that with other survivors too. 
another good thing I think you could do is, first of all, you told me this was your first interview. Thank you very much for being on the show. <laughs> I'm, I'm proud to have you as the first guest. Thank you. Uh, but I think a great thing might be, even if you want to do it through Zoom, like we're doing right now, or go to schools, go to wherever, maybe uh, where people are abused and just talk to them, like maybe the abusive people that are abused groups that they have. And then you can talk to them, tell them what you went through, and then they could share their stories. I think that would be a big thing too. Like instead of having, because I know you're doing book signings and things like that, but also mm -hmm. maybe just go and talk to different groups. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I just, if I, I need to figure out like who to connect with, you know, and how to make that happen. I'm trying, trying to network at, at this point and see. Yeah, I have different things coming up, a few book signings planned, but I would like to do more, um, more, you know, at things outside the box than just like the traditional brick and mortar book signing. Yeah, because I think yeah. your book is not the average book. So it's great to do book signings, great to sell some books. And you're going to talk to, I'm sure people come up to you all the time and say, oh, this, this book really helped me. But you could do so much good if you get yeah. out of the box and reach out to people that might not even know your book exists. I know that's the hardest part about being an independent author, which you know firsthand. Yes. You know, it's just you're constantly marketing. Like you think getting the idea and doing the actual writing is the hard part, but it's not. It's once it's published, spreading the word. And it's you could have the, the best product in, in the world, but if people don't know about it, it, you know, what does it matter? You know, the getting it, spreading the word is, is so important. And I, I try to do so much on social media, but you never really know who's engaging and who's not. Oh, you exactly. Know, so. Yeah. I mean, your friends will like the post and then maybe they're scrolling by and they hit like it. They're like, oh, I didn't even realize what that was. But yeah, I know what you mean. Cause I do, I, same thing. I've done comedy, I wrote books. So all the, trying to promote myself, letting people know what I'm doing, where I'm going to be. And like, oh, Rich, I didn't realize you were there. It's a, that's yeah. the toughest part. The, what you said, writing it or doing the stand-up comedy, that was, that was tough, but it, it was fun. And the hardest part was letting people know, I'm going to be at this place on Saturday night. Come down and check me out. Yeah. yeah. And I think a, it, for me, it's, it's a difficult transition because with the first book, the first book was very yeah. lighthearted and fun. Yeah. And who doesn't want to like, rag on a person that they went out with on a date and talk about something strange and weird and you know make fun about sex and stuff and people love that you know so I became the comedic comedic girl you know that talked yeah. about dating and gave dating advice and now I'm it's more this is obviously a serious topic mm -hmm. I mean I still have my sense of humor but it's a serious you know, dramatic topic so I think people like don't really know it's it would be successful if I was able to do both but I think they put me in a box in the beginning and now they're kind of like, oh, we don't really know what to do with her. Like with that, and especially the serious topic, some people, they don't want to go there. And I, I understand, like I was part of a couple writing groups where we would bring in our excerpts of our writing and have them critique it prior to publication. And um, I had some people in the group that um, they didn't want to hear it. It was really hard for him, them. You know, and I was like, uh, I, you know, respectfully, I understand it's hard for you, but I lived through it, you know, and I, I need some feedback there. Like, well, that doesn't happen in my world. And I like to write about positive things. I'm like, well, this isn't unicorns and rainbows, lady. Like, 
this stuff really happens. <laughs> I know. So. I always say that if it didn't happen to them, it's not real. I talk right. about that with different subjects. I said, they're not going to care about it until they're personally affected. And unfortunately, you just verified and confirmed the conversations I've had with other people, which, which is sad because I think that's good that you're doing this um, in the fact that like I've spoken with authors and I've read um, interviews with other authors where basically they write a book, it becomes a big hit. And then the publisher, people who are published will say, I want the same book with just a different name. They don't like different oh, genres yeah. because they want what their audience likes. They basically just want to sell the book. And uh, there was one author in particular, his name is Greg Isles, a great author. If you haven't read him, I think you would like him. Yeah. Uh, but every book he writes is a different genre. It's in, Every book is great. And the first time they did that, the publisher said, whoa, whoa, we don't want this. And it became a big hit. So now he says, I have carte blanche. I can do whatever I want. But it was only oh, because nice. he took the chance to do it. He goes, I don't want to be stuck. I don't want to be boxed in and say, I have to do this. And that's why I think yeah. it's good that you started off with a humorous book. People know you have a great sense of humor. And you also, even it's a memoir and it's very serious and it's written very well. So now I think the next book you can, you can pick your choice of the subject. What kind of books do you like to write? Well, I, I realized that I can only write about something I've experienced. Yeah. So I'm currently not writing anything because I don't have any more stories, right? And I hope that I never go through something like that again, you know? But um, I, uh, um, what was I gonna say about that? Well, I was gonna ask you, cause you said you were in the middle of the book and he deleted 50,000 words. What was oh, that book about? Well, that was like a, a sequel to the first book. Okay. But I kind of just felt like I wasn't really into it, you know, like it was hard for me because people loved the first book and they wanted the characters' lives to continue, but I was in a different place then. Like that book took place in South Florida. I had moved to Connecticut. My life was different, you know, and so I was trying to give people what they wanted and not like do what I like really felt in my heart. So yeah. So in a way, Eric gave me a gift. He gave yeah. me a story, you know, and, and I just, like I said earlier, I just felt compelled to share it. And it's, I just want it to be transparent with people about it because like I said, you know, so, so many people are like this, you know, won't happen to me. And I definitely felt the same way, but I, I feel like it's a delicate topic, but one that, you know, is, is still taboo but we really do need to talk about it. Yeah, we do. And people, as much as they don't want to hear it, it does happen to that, it does happen to people out there. And not everything you said, rainbow, rainbows and unicorns. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I feel like, you know, he was a con artist and this is kind of like the, the time to be living in, like where people are interested in con artists. So yeah. I, I feel like people take a specific, you know, interest in it. I feel like nowadays a con artist is like the serial killer of before, you know, like everybody was like obsessed with serial killers and now people are obsessed with con artists. So I think when it came down to it, Eric was, you know, a con artist because like you, you said, he was a chameleon and he could be whatever you wanted him to be. And he didn't really have an identity. Like he said, oh, you're an author. I want to be an author. You know, oh, you have your own business. I want to be an entrepreneur. It's like, who are you? You know? Yeah. Well, even after all of that, and after everything you went through in that 
that night where you, he trashed your place, you went to your therapist and you said, what bothers you the most is that he didn't love you. Yeah. I think that's a, a hard realization because at the core of everyone, we all just want to be loved, you know, and it's, it's just a hard pill to swallow when you realize that someone just really didn't love you, that, that everything they said was just words and lies. And, um, you know, I think that's something that's really difficult to come to terms with. Yeah. Um, after all this, did Eric try to contact you? So he had to go to the uh, psychiatric facility the night of. He wasn't actually arrested that night mm -hmm. because he threatened to kill himself. So that was the procedure. Uh, while he was there, they were treating him like a patient and not like a criminal. So they gave him his cell phone and didn't monitor him. And he kept calling and calling and calling. And that's when he told me that he was going to kill me. He said that, he, like... I quote, he said, I'm going to slit your dog's throat and you'll watch him bleed out. And then I'm going to take a hammer and pummel you until you're a bloody mess and die. And, I, and then he paid attention. Nobody's even paid no. attention to him. He kept on the calling me, yeah, calling me. And wow. he told me, I'm, I'm going to come back and finish the job. So yeah, then I called the hospital and I was like, listen, you need to understand that this guy is really dangerous and he should not be calling me and this that they're like, okay, we'll take his phone away. So then what did he do? He started calling me from the landline. And then I'm like, just take everything away from him. So then they got to a point where they couldn't even manage him. He was like destroying the whole um, wing of the hospital, the room and pulling things out of the wall. And, and then he uh, sexually assaulted the nurses and they contacted the police and they're like, we don't have a facility for this type of person. And that's when they took him into custody. Yeah, they couldn't um, restrain him. I mean, maybe even not a straitjacket, but something. They could have put yeah. him in custody. Like, wow, I'm surprised that it got that bad. And was, they let yeah, it get that really bad. bad. Wow. I know. Yeah, he was because it, this happened on December 1st. And yep. he wasn't arrested until December 8th. Wow. Yeah, I had a week of that. I mean, I, I noticed that a lot of the things like that I thought expected it to be different didn't play out that well. Like, um, for example, even the four hour standoff with the police, like, I don't think it should have taken four hours. But I think that in the state of our society now with the police, that the police really can't do anything, you know? And, and I was really frustrated because I'm like, just go in and get him. Like, why are you giving him so much freedom? And um, the, the negotiator was like, oh, I'll get you cigarettes. Oh, I'll get you a sandwich. I'll get you this pretty, please come out. We won't hurt you. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Just go in and get him, you know? But so my boyfriend now is a police officer. So I kind of have a different perspective of how the police handle things now. And, and they just have to be so sensitive with, you know, because it's like police accountability and, you know, yeah. a lot of the, a lot of the attitude towards policing is completely different now. So they, they're always like on guard and they have to just be so procedural. My father was a cop from 1968 to 1998 for 30 years. And yeah, that's one of the reasons he left because he was saying now they want you to be a cop without being a cop. You can't right. do this. You can't do that. You have to be in 
even though you're doing your job, somebody with a cell phone is going to take something out of context. Oh, police brutality. Look at this. And they're not seeing the whole story of the guy was terrorizing him or the woman three seconds right. before they started filming and the cop is just trying to restrain the guy. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And I agree with it. That Yeah. I don't know why anybody would want to be a police officer in this day and age because it, it's you're constantly having to defend yourself, you yeah. know, and, and everything that they see and, and, and all they do, it's just thankless. And I feel like, you know, why they're putting their, their self themselves in danger every single time, you know, they go to work for what, you know, I just feel like the risk like definitely outweighs the benefit. Well, I'll give you one perfect example. My father broke up a party years ago and the kids surrounded his car, started shaking and said they were going to kill him. So he took out his gun like that. The kids ran in the woods and they told him next time, just lock the doors. I don't want you pulling out your gun. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So things like that. And this was years ago. It's even worse now with this was before social media. Now with social media, they really have to be extremely careful because as I mentioned, something's going to be taken out of context. It's going to go viral and the cops are all bad and the yeah. people getting away with, with everything because you're violating my rights. No, right. no. So I, you and I are on the same page and yeah, yeah. tough job. And it's just like anything, like there are good cops and there are bad cops. Like yeah. that night I had one really amazing cop that stayed with me the whole time in the freezing cold, you know, after his shift had ended and he was so nice and so supportive. And then there was another cop that was like, well, I told you so, you know, didn't you have a protective order? You know, didn't you know this was going to happen? Yeah. Um, but then there was a domestic violence detective that was assigned to me and she's amazing. You know, she's such a great resource and she was so, so helpful. So, I mean, like, like I said, with anything, there's good and bad, but I feel like there's more good than bad. Oh, definitely. Well, you are the epitome of the perfect example of what does not kill me makes me stronger. <laughs> Because, I mean, you. everything you've been through, it may not seem like it in the, well, you're going through it, but probably made you a stronger person and definitely more cautious, more careful. And, and now you know what to look for and you see different signs like, no, this doesn't seem right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, I just feel like uh, that after this, that I could really, if I've lived through this, I, I could live through anything. Like I, um, you know, it sounds kind of weird, but there's, um, there was a picture of he and I that was in a frame and he, he broke it and he took a knife and he scratched my face out so that, you know, I had no face in the picture. It just shows you like the state of mind that he was in. And I carry that around with me to remind me that if I live through that, I live through somebody like that, that I could live through anything. Yeah. Who is Candace? Uh, so Candace was one of the things in narcissist abuse is a flying monkey, which I didn't know. I started researching about it. Flying monkey, like in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. You know, the, the wicked witch, she sends them off to do her bidding. So narcissists, they target um, people that can do their bidding. So Candace, I think, was a way for Eric to contact me or learn about my life. And so she came into my life saying that she was his friend, but that, um, you know, she was on my side and she wanted to be supportive, but I think she was just kind of getting information. Um, 
So yeah, she was very strange, but I, I would definitely say that she was an example of a flying monkey. It was a way for him to keep that connection with me without actually being near me. No, I know this is somebody he obviously used, but is that somebody, was she an ex? Yes, she was. And that's what they do too. Like they hover, they keep, they generally, they keep um, relationships with their ex so that they can constantly, they'll put one on a shelf and when they get their new toy, they play with the new toy. Then when they get sick of that one, they put it on the shelf and they take the one down. So it's constant recycling of exes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it's she was a shiny new object. Right. I was a shiny new object at the time. And the thing with him is that I don't think it's really over with him because that's why I'm, I'm a little uh, scared about when he does get out because it didn't end on his terms mm -hmm. with that type of personality. They need to be the one that discards that, that is in a position of power. But for me to call the police and him to be discarded that way, like, I'm not sure he's going to accept that. I'm so glad you're dating a cop. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I didn't do that on purpose. Did I maybe subconsciously? <laughs> I love it. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah but with, with Candace, I knew that, that she wasn't right when I asked her to talk to the detective because she said that he had threatened me when she talked to him and she didn't want to. And I was like, okay, you know, like this is a little strange. And then she just disappeared. Yeah, just like they all do. Mm -hmm. Is So do you have any idea how long he's gonna be sentenced for? They offered him seven to nine years, I think. Okay. And he turned it down. He was trying to get out with a mental illness defense, yeah. of course. So, I mean, he's already been in there for over a year, mm -hmm. which I don't even understand how he survived for over a year there. But he has, but he's like, you said a chameleon. I guess he knows how to, you know, work different environments. But, um, yeah. yeah, he has a he has a court date coming up at the end of the month. I don't know if they're actually going to do it because everything's been pushed forward because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure, but I'm hoping that he gets, uh, you know, what he deserves and that it ends with me. You know, I, I would I, in a perfect world. I would hope that I would be the last victim. I hope so. I mean, I had one when my book came out. So my book was published February 8th. And that week I got a DM from a woman that had known him for like 30 years. And she was like, oh, I read your book. I could have written the book, you know, all the experiences that you had. She's like, I saw the news article, what happened to you when it first happened. And I didn't believe you. I believed him. She's like, I wasn't ready to come to terms with what he was, but she's like, thank you so much for your voice. You know, you're your book was really, it really touched me. And like, you know, I appreciated that. So that, that's what I think is, it's all about, you know, getting that kind of confirmation that everything will be okay and trying to spread that word to other people. Yeah, and it goes back to what I was saying before. The book is great, doing book signings is great, but I think you need to do the talk circuit as well because you're doing an important thing for a lot of people. Yeah, I think so too. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I want to talk about, the, you know, that saying, the acorn does not fall far from the tree. What did Eric's mother say to another victim when she confided in her about his abuse? 
Oh, uh, I think she said that that it was her fault. Yeah, tough you enough. Know, that she, yeah, that she didn't, well, she didn't believe her at first. Yeah, tough enough. And I knew that there was something wrong with the family, but I didn't know who it was. I didn't know if it was the father or the mother, but it makes sense that it's the mother since he hated the mother so much. Yeah. You know, and he would say, I actually never met the mother. I never met the family, but he would say, um, like I would chew gum and he'd be like, why are you chewing gum like that? You know, you remind me of my mother or, you know, and I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's crazy. laughs> uh, yeah, just so I, I, I don't know. That's so unbelievable. But it, yeah, they say that um, truth is stranger than fiction. That is very true. <laughs> does he have any siblings at all? Yeah, a few brothers. And are they crazy? Probably. <laughs> I would say the whole family is probably crazy. It's like the hills know. have eyes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I think they grew up in a nuclear power plant or something. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> something in the water. I don't know. That explains a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be some kind of explanation for that type of crazy. My therapist said that if you could, under it's a good thing that you don't get it because you're not it. Like if you understand, if you speak that language and that's a problem. So I'm never going to understand crazy because I don't, I'm not crazy. Yes. And I love yeah. that. <laughs> well, also this might be the same psychiatrist. I love what uh, your psychiatrist said to you. Your current situation is not your final destination. Yeah. Yeah. They're always good with those little know. quotes, you know? Yeah. She's, yeah, she was good with those, but um, she was right, you know, and, and she's, you know what is that um, she she never told me she always met me where I was, you know, like she never told me when I was with him, I started talking to her and she never told me to leave him, which I think was good because I, I probably wouldn't have and it would have turned me off. But she supported me at every step in the of the the healing process in the way that I needed it. And I really feel like that is a talent to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. You would probably rebel. Like, I'm not going to have somebody tell me what to do. They don't know. They don't understand what I'm going through. Right. And it seems like I've never been to a psychiatrist myself, but I do know a lot of people and I've had ex-girlfriends that have been to psychiatrists. And it seems like the good ones basically, well, what do you think about that? Why do you feel like that? And sorry, all the emotions, if you're being truthful, if you have to be extremely truthful, and if you are, right. you will find the answer on your own, even though you're paying them a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but still, I think you're, that's a good way to do it because if they said, "Well, no, you, you shouldn't be with him," and then you're gonna say, "Right, oh, well, you don't know this person. I've known you for let's say, six months, and you're telling me that you know you know me better than I know myself." So I think right. that I'm glad that your psychiatrist did do that and let you make, even though I wish it didn't last that long. I know. You finally, did. I think that the role of the the um, psychologist is to just listen and be supportive and not judge, yeah. you know? Um, she did say stuff like how she felt. Cause I always got irritated when I would talk to somebody and they'd be like, you said, well, how do you feel? And I'm like, do you have anything to say? You know, like, and they're just sitting there with their notebook taking notes. And it was just, I didn't like that type of psychology, but she, she was good, you know, but she never, but she knew like what her boundary was, you know, not to, to be too pushy. Yeah. What's well, funny because with the next girlfriend of mine, we were talking about that and she was going to a psychiatrist and I said, pretty much everything she's telling you, I tell you all the time. She goes, 
well, I need to go to somebody that I don't know or doesn't know me personally. It's just the way the way she was describing is like more like right. uh, somebody that isn't going to judge her, which I never judged right. her. It's just that, but somebody that she felt more like comfortable. Neutral person. Neutral. That's yeah. 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 So, definitely. Yeah. So that that's that makes sense. It, it made her more comfortable to talk to that person, even though every time she would come back, I would say, I say that to you all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to talk to somebody that you know you're familiar with. That's why when you you know when you go on a plane and you end up telling your whole life story to the person sitting next to you because you're never going to see them again. Yeah. You know, like we have those confessional moments because you know we it's safe. It's safe when they're not with you all the time and you know it's unfamiliar. Now, after everything was over with, he was put away. Did you ever visit the psychic again? Oh, yes, I have. Yeah. And she she told me that he doesn't have any remorse, which I already figured, and that he has a long history of doing this and that he's basically sitting there plotting his revenge, which was a little unsettling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> Especially the fact that she's been right with everything else. <laughs> I know, I know. You know what she also says, too, though, that she's never right about? She keeps telling me that I'm, I'm going, and I don't ask her about this ever. She keeps saying that I'm going to be a millionaire. Every single time I talk to her, you're going to be a millionaire. You're going to be so famous. You're going to be a billionaire. And I'm like, not a millionaire. And I, I don't know, like I wanted to write a book. I wrote a book. I wanted to write another one. I wrote another one. The one thing that I really want to do that I haven't actualized is I really want one of my books to become a Netflix movie or series. Yes. You know, maybe that's how I'll become a millionaire, but she just is so adamant about it. And it's not in my, the bank account doesn't reflect it. So I'm not <laughs> you know sure. Not, I think I want to make an appointment with that psychic because <laughs> my yeah. bank account doesn't look that good either. So <laughs> Really? I don't know why. And because I never say anything about money, you know, money isn't that important to me. I never yeah. bring it up, but she always goes to it. You're going to be so successful. You're going to be a millionaire. And I could see if she just said I'm going to be successful, like, because everybody's definition of success is different. Yeah. But she always goes to money. So I'm waiting. All right. Well, hopefully yeah. it's going to be happening sooner than later. I'll share some with you if I get All to right. that level. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Did, um, I know you're, you're thinking you don't really have anything planned for a book right now, a new book. At all. Um, so were you uh, doing the book signings and just promoting yeah. this? Have any big companies or um, publishing companies come up to you and said, I love what you're doing. I'd like to sign you. No, I didn't get those calls either. Maybe it's in the mail. I don't know. No, I, <laughs> you know, I, um, I do a lot of things. I have um, one of my accounts on Instagram mm -hmm. is Dana Licious Reviews. Mm -hmm. So I do like a lot of things with restaurants and, um, I had an influencer event where um, the influencers all got a copy of my book and then we tried the menu too and then they posted. So I have another one of those coming up um, in Greenwich next week. So I'm doing that. And then uh, the Fairfield University Bookstore, I'm planning something there and a collaboration with uh, this really cute um, boutique. Um, are you familiar with South Norwalk? Yes. Yeah, there's this uh, boutique on the corner called um, Echo, Echo Evolution. I heard of it. It's a really cool vibe. And the guy is very supportive of authors. 
So we're going to do like a light bite and um, wine author reading. Oh, good. And, and, and when then Barnes and Noble bookstore I have in Milford. So I have a couple things that I'm organizing. The one with the collaboration is May 12th. May 12th. And I just um, figured it out yesterday. So I haven't started promoting it yet. Okay, good. What about Barnes Noble? When's that going to be? Barnes and Noble, I think is going to be in June. She's, she said that she has to book it six weeks out. Yeah. And Fairfield University Bookstore, we don't have a date yet. You know where you should go is I, this happened to me by accident. It's such a great experience. I went to the Barnes Noble in West Hartford. Not oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. And the yeah. assistant manager was there. And all I did was say, I would love to put my book. Do you have a local author section? She goes, yeah, do a book signing. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? So end up being, they told me it was the biggest local author book signing they had. Oh. I sold 20 books. I ran out. People still wanted to buy it. That's awesome. I had such a great experience with that. The Good for you. Packed. It was funny because it started at seven o'clock at night on a Saturday. At 6.55, there was two people there. So, oh my God, this could be horrible. I went to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. I came back to get ready. Place was packed. And then the, uh, the horrible, not the horrible part, but what I sort of got frustrated with was even though I promoted it, promoted it, promoted it, had the address, yeah. about five or six people showed up at the one down the street in Farmington. I said, no, how many times they went there? Uh, so because they're, they're so close together. But yeah. I, I would definitely, I'm not sure if she's there anymore, but I would yeah. check that up because they have such a great area to do that. I had a, Yeah, is that the book. blue black square? That's the one, yes. Yeah, I did the, for plenty of laughs. I did the, I did one there, North Haven and, um, What's the other one? There's Waterbury. There, North Haven. I thought I did three Barnes and Noble. Maybe not. Waterbury. The thing with Barnes and Noble though, is if you don't sell all the books, yes. then they send them back and then you have to actually pay for them. So I'm gonna have to talk to them about that because I don't wanna, people think like you sell all these books and you like make tons of money. Oh yeah, no. Yeah, they think that it like authors are rich. Like really, a, when you get like two dollars a book. <laughs> there was one time I I wasn't paying attention. I saw it in my checking account a dollar twenty five from Amazon. I said, "Oh my god, this is fraud!" I called the bank, found out yeah. that it was a credit from Amazon. Somebody bought one of my books. Yeah, that's your royalty. Dollar twenty five. You can't even buy a cup of coffee with that. No, not at all. <laughs> you know, but but you're an is, author. I was going to say, the good thing is I had a great time doing it. And luckily yeah. I have a job that pays the bills. And just like this show right now, it's a hobby. And I love doing this show the best because I meet so many interesting people just like yourself. And yeah. I love having so many different eclectic guests on. And yeah, that's so, really cool. so happy that you chose this show to be your first. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That, that was really that's really awesome. I like that you're able yeah, no. to ask all those great questions and try to spread the word. Definitely. I will sure. spread the word for you because I, as I mentioned it all throughout the interview, I'll say it one more time, buy the book. It's great. And it's a very, very important book. That I think everybody should read because just like she said, or it's like Dana said, it, it, oh, it doesn't happen to just them. It can happen to anybody. You, you right. can be that next person. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the last question before we go, is everything going to be okay? <laughs> yeah, I think everything will be okay. I feel like that it's really important when you're in a challenging situation to try to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And, and I took something that was really 
you know, devastating and dramatic and tried to flip it and find, you know, something positive in it. And that's what I think that my lesson is with everything will be okay. You know, in the beginning of the book, he was trying to tell me everything will be okay. And of course I didn't believe it because it wasn't ever going to be okay with him. And then in the, um, the emergency room, they were like, everything will be okay. And I didn't believe it. And I feel like the end, when I went through my healing journey and like took back my power, then when I said everything will be okay, I meant it because I was in that place. Yeah. Well, I'm so very, very happy to hear that. I'm glad that you're in a great place right now. You definitely deserve to be in a much better place than where you were before. And hopefully he gets what he deserves and you never, ever have to worry about him or see him again. Yeah. Thank you. All right, that wraps up the latest episode of The Claws Corner. A huge thanks goes out to my guest, author Dana Butmer, for sharing her story on my show. I would thank also you. like to thank the extremely talented John Bristol of Elmwood Productions for always doing a superb job editing the show each and every week. And last, but definitely not least, I'd like to thank you, the viewer, for tuning in. Enjoy your day, everyone. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no. If you say so. I've always wanted to be in a movie. Turn around, girl.